There shall come a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He shall raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gathered the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. This is a consideration of the third antiphon. The antiphons were short hymns or chants that were developed by the early church, and they likely go back into the first generations of the church. And they began with a call to the Messiah through one of his names, and for the Messiah to come, and then there was a rehearsal of something that the Messiah had accomplished through the power of God, and then there was a response to that where the people would, in a sense, adjust themselves or align themselves with that truth by making a request of the Messiah. And in the Latin, we have the Latin translated for this third antiphon, and it would read like this, O root of Jesse, standing as a sign among the peoples, before you kings will shut their mouths. To you the nations will make their prayer. Come and deliver us and delay no longer. We sing the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is a version of the antiphons. There are seven stanzas in that hymn. And it was a rough translation of the Latin that came in the mid-1800s. Here's the verse that corresponds with this antiphon. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. Now, this takes us to Isaiah chapter 11, and we've read the passage here, and I want to give you a backdrop for a moment. If you were actually to read Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, there is a backdrop for this section of the book of Isaiah, and there's an ongoing theme. The backdrop is the machination of the powers that are coming and surrounding the nation of Judah and that Judah is under threat by. And so you have the national powers of Syria, you have the national power of the northern tribes of Israel, and you have the great and national power of Assyria, all pressing themselves in their interest upon the nation of Judah. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, is being pressed by Syria 
and by the northern tribe to join into a alignment or to align themselves with them against Assyria. And Ahaz is resisting. So Syria and northern Israel are forming battles to come against the nation of Judah in order to force, you might say, a defensive alliance against Assyria. And in the middle of all this, Ahaz is looking for a way to escape the immediate threat that's coming against him from Syria and Israel. So that's the historical backdrop for Isaiah chapter 7 all the way through Isaiah chapter 12. The basic theme is a theme of trust. God is calling for the nation of Judah to put their complete trust in him and to not put their trust and hope in the current situation and not to put their trust and hope in any kind of earthly alliance and any kind of earthly power. So God actually sends Isaiah to go to Ahaz and tell Ahaz that he should not fear Syria or northern Israel that they won't prevail against Judah, that God will himself protect the nation. And God actually tells in chapter 7 of Isaiah, God actually through Isaiah tells Ahaz to, to ask of him any sign that he wants. And God will fulfill that sign as a demonstration that he can trust completely in what God will provide in God's protection over his nation. And Ahaz responds that he will not put God to the test. He poses a kind of false spirituality Who am I to put God to the test? And he won't ask for a sign. But the reality is that Ahaz has already decided that he's going to enter into a league with Assyria against Syria and against northern Israel. As a result, by the way, Ahaz brings his nation into tremendous compromise and tremendous danger. He won't trust in God. He won't rest in God. He won't look to God. He'll look to the alliances that he can create in order to protect himself from this immediate threat that comes from Syria and from Israel. And here's just a lesson. And by the way, through our message today, I think I'll give a couple of lessons that we can learn. And at the end, I want to add a few more. But the lesson here is that if you place your hope and trust in a worldly power as an answer to the threats that you feel in your life, if you put your hope and trust in other things, in earthly things, as the answer for the threats that you feel in your life, you may be making a covenant with the very thing that will be the greatest threat to you of all. And that's what exactly happens in this passage. The Assyrian army goes, and the Assyrian army wipes out the Syrian people. And then the Assyrian army goes into northern Israel and wipes out the northern Israel and the tribes and the nation of northern Israel. But then the Assyrian army turns its attention towards Judah and the nation of Judah that made their alliance with them and it comes against them and if you come to Isaiah chapter 10 and you read the last half of Isaiah chapter 10 what you have described for you is an advance of the Assyrian army now this very nation that Ahaz has made a covenant with and come into agreement with to protect them from the Syrians and the northern Israelites now the Assyrian army is coming against the capital of Jerusalem And nothing is standing in its way. And every town that it passes through on its advance against Jerusalem lets up a great lament. And so you just see the advance of the army through one section and one place and one geographical point on the road map on their way to kind of sneaking around the backside of Jerusalem to come down upon it and descend upon it. And in each place that they move, there's this lament and this great distress that rises up throughout Judah. The final verse before the last two verses of chapter 10 This great nation now comes poised to attack Jerusalem and destroy it. Jerusalem's destruction at this point in time is inevitable. 
But Assyria's assault against Jerusalem fails. It doesn't succeed. The angel of the Lord goes out among the Assyrian camp and we're told that overnight over 185,000 of the Assyrian army are destroyed. You can read about that in Isaiah chapter 37, verse 36, where it describes the destruction, basically the total destruction of this destroying army in a night, overnight by the destruction, the force of the angel of the Lord. Actually, Isaiah prophesies about this in Isaiah chapter 10, in those last two verses of Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah describes the advance of this army all the way up to the edge of Jerusalem, and it's almost as if everything is pent up for this great release of the hordes of the Syrian army upon Jerusalem, and we pause for a moment, and then after we pause, Isaiah introduces the arrival of the majestic one who comes to this Assyrian army, which is amassed like a mighty force of cedars in Lebanon against the city, ready to descend upon the city of Jerusalem. And then the majestic one comes and cuts down all of the cedars of Lebanon, cuts down this massive army like trees that are just hewn down to the stump. And then what happens for us is we're called to look upon this field of stumps, this mighty forest of the Assyrian army that's been cut down to the ground. And that's how chapter 10 ends. And then chapter 11 begins, and this is where we find ourselves. With Acts still in hand, you might say, God directs our attention to another stump. From this whole army of Assyria that has been cut down to nothing, God turns our attention from the field of stumps to just one stump. It's called the stump of Jesse. This is the family of King David. Jesse was David's father. The house of David had been unfaithful to God. Ahaz had been unfaithful to God. The kings of Judah had failed over and over and over again, and they had chose earthly alliances and earthly means of maintaining their power and earthly means of striving after what they thought were God's promises for them. And God deals with them because of their poor choices they choose to trust in these earthly powers and these worldly solutions rather than trusting in God. And as a result, they too are cut down to a stump. The Davidic line will fall so far from the promises of messianic worldwide might that had been promised to them that they're not even referred to here as the house of David. We go back before David and they're just called the stump of Jesse, David's father. That's what we have here. This is the house of David cut down to that time before David even is brought forward and before his family rises to power. Nothing is left of it but a stump, Jesse's stump, but also a promise from God. A promise from God. Out of that stump rises this single slip, this small twig or branch grows out of the stump and it grows to the point of bearing fruit. And now Isaiah gives us a vision of the Messiah King emerging in this place. And actually there's another theme. As you have this theme of these great powers, you also have interjected throughout these passages that I give you from Isaiah chapter 7 all the way through the passages of reading today. Isaiah begins to introduce the theme of a child and the voice and the presence of a child. And so when he approaches initially he approaches Ahaz to ask that he give him any kind of sign, and Ahaz will not ask for a sign. He says, he won't test the Lord. Isaiah said, you will receive a sign. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, 
And a child is going to be born to them that will be a sign of that God's promises are true. And then in verse 9, that child is reintroduced again. And the child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then in chapter 9, that child is introduced to us again. And there we read, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Again, it's a wonderful prophecy of this child that is being presented to us. And here in chapter 11, the child is given to us or presented to us again, but now it's presented as a little slip rising out of a stump, a little twig, a little branch. And later we read about the child as, a little child shall lead them. There is something that's being presented to us. There's this contrast that's being built up against the powers and machinations of the world against kings and against war-hardened armies and against their aggressions, there is this picture of what men have trusted and arrested in. And in contrast to it, God gives and offers a naive little child that's rising up this tender image that's the expression of what God will give for their security and for their protection and for their salvation. And these contrasts are being made for us. This is what we're seeing being formed here And now we have a description of this child that comes to us. And let's look at this passage now, just with our eyes on chapter 11. In verse 2, what we see is the equipment of his rule, the equipment of the rule of this little branch. He's equipped with the Spirit of God. There was this understanding in the Hebrew writing that God's Spirit was revealed in a sevenfold way. You might remember that the candelabra in the holy place represented the Holy Spirit, and it had seven candles burning from it. And here we have seven mentions of the Spirit of God. First is just the Spirit of Jehovah, it said, will come. And then you have a spirit of wisdom and a spirit of knowledge. You have a spirit of counsel and might. You have a spirit of knowledge of Yahweh and the fear of Yahweh. These are all mentioned. Let's look at them very quickly. The spirit of wisdom is the spirit of understanding how all things in nature work. How all things in nature work. The practical way in which they work and express themselves. And then you also have the spirit of knowledge, which is basically knowing all that is before you, knowing what it is. In other words, he knows all things that are before him. He knows what they are, and he knows how they work. He can identify everything as to its purpose and its design and how it carries out that design and how it works. And then the next thing you have is you have the spirit of counsel. That is the ability to take this knowledge and this wisdom and then build from it a plan, an operating plan on how to carry out and apply what he knows and the wisdom of how those things work together in order to fulfill some divine and wonderful purpose. And so he has the spirit of counsel. But beyond the spirit of knowing how then to integrate all that together into a design or a purpose, he has the power to execute it. He has might and he has power. And then you find out what's the motivation behind this wisdom and this knowledge and this ability to synthesize it into a plan and this power to exercise it. What motivates it is this binding relationship with God. It's a knowledge. It's a deep knowing of Yahweh and who He is. It's a deep, loving, abiding relationship with Him. It's the Spirit. This interplay of the Messiah with Yahweh who sent Him and Finally, there is in this deep knowledge, in this deep love of Yahweh, there is also in it a great and powerful spirit of holy reverence or fear. 
so that all that he does is done out of his love and done out of his reverence to apply his wisdom and knowledge to the right plan and the right strategy and to implement it by the right power, the power of the Spirit. This has all been infused in him by the Spirit of God. That's his equipment. Now let's look at the second thing, and it's the conduct of his rule. And what we see here in verses 3 through 5 is that he rules in righteousness. Verse 5 is actually the key to understanding verses 3 and 4. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. How is that righteous rule expressed? Well, the first thing we see here in verse 3 is that he delights in, it says he delights in the reverence or fear of the Lord. That is, that he's capable of recognizing those who are motivated themselves by the same knowledge of God and this love of God and this reverence for God. He's not fooled by people who share some kind of fawning interest in the same things you're interested in. You know, people can scope out what you're interested in, what your sensitivities are, and then they can sell themselves to you by appealing to your sensitivities and your interests, and they can fool you by using those things to manipulate you. But he knows the difference between those who fawn interest and those who pretend reverence and interest in the things that you're interested in, the things that you are the value systems in your life, you see, and those who really hold to them. In this case... He can tell those who fawn or pretend to reverence and interest in God and the person whose heart is true to him and truly reverences and fears him. And it's that person he delights in. That sparks a response in him. He identifies and so he's able to find those who can work with him in executing his will and his purposes as he comes to reign. And then as he carries out this righteous rule, this recognition of who it is that are those that he can trust and whom he delights in, it influences the rule in such a way that he cares for those who are most needy. He cares for those who are downtrodden. He lifts those who have been denied access because of the manipulation of others. The very people who have feigned an interest and have pretended to come and care for the poor and have used these different strategies in order to sequester and manipulate people to their own political ends and their own powerful ends He's able to recognize it. He's going to bring his judgments against them. It says he'll judge the wicked and he'll bring to those poor that have been pawns, you might say, of people's power plays. He'll bring to them an expression of righteousness that truly cares for their needs and meets them, while at the same time he brings harsh judgment of those who have grown fat off the misfortunes of others. It says at the very end, his very words that will come out in judgment. His Words are able to shatter in pieces the false narratives of those who sought manipulation and control. Shatters them as he reigns in righteousness. Here's the third thing. It's this. It's the product of his rule. It says here that restores all the earth, all of animal life to a state of abundant peace. Let's read verses 6 through 9 again. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play in the hole of the cobra. Can you imagine what an alarm it would be now if you saw a child doing that? The nursing child shall play in the hole of the cobra. The weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's the cause of this wonderful outcome that will be realized? Well, it's found in that last verse we read, verse 9. It's the fact that God 
the knowledge of God is brought forward upon the earth like a great inundating flood. It's when this knowledge of God is bowed to and not suppressed but confessed that healing comes to the world's dis-ease and the world is brought back into this state, this Edenic state. You know, the mystics took this description that we just read and they felt that it was to be spiritualized, to be an expression of spiritual life that we're to realize ourselves. And so they didn't take it literally. And then the modernists took that passage and said, well, let's take it literally, but let's just say it's this fanciful dream of idealistic individuals. But when we look at this passage, it's not to be symbolized. It's not simply to be spiritualized. We should take it literally. It's a literal promise from God. Dielich writes that this, this promise from God, its realization is to be expected on this side of the boundary between time and eternity. Dielich turns our attention to look at, he's a commentator, he turns our attention to Romans 8, verses 19 through 22. So go there for a second. Because Paul speaks of the same thing. How that in time, in the creative order that God has made, this creation, as it is now, is longing for a day of redemption. A day that's just been described for us here in Isaiah chapter 11. The product of the righteous rule of the one who is equipped with the Spirit of God, the Messiah that rises up from the stump of Jesse. Here in Romans 8, verses 19 through 22, we read this. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willing, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. It is longing for a release to come to it. The Bible reveals to us there's coming a day when we who have died and have risen up to be with Christ and those who are drawn to him at his coming will come down from the heavens clothed in white behind him as a great king upon a white horse and will come with him to reign upon the earth. And this is the glorious unveiling of the sons of God. And it says creation is longing for that day when Christ will come to reign in that way. When he comes, he'll come to bring to earth the inundation of the knowledge of God and the experience of the knowledge of God that will flow from one end of the earth to the other. And what we can say about this is that the knowledge of God, fully known and fully experienced throughout the world, will bring to an end the violent antagonisms of creation. There is at this moment in time, uh, rule or a reign that's taking place in creatures from the greatest to the least. A fierce conflict and bloodthirstiness that is most savage and it happens throughout the creative order. But when the son of David enters into the possession of his royal inheritance and he comes to rule, there will be the peace of paradise descending over all of creation. And all the different popular legends of a golden age that's to be realized and to come will be fulfilled. And that's what Isaiah is prophesying. That moment when all of the aggression of creation will be wiped away before the knowledge and the experience of the presence of God. The hostilities that mar the human race will vanish from every part of creation. Here's another application for us. There is, to some extent, ways in which we can find peace on earth today now. What it is, is we figure out that 
Life is better when we don't fight with one another. You know, we figure out that you know, there are advantages to be gained if every one of us can own a McDonald's and have enough money to go buy a hamburger and, a, and some french fries. There was until recently. Things have changed in the last five years. There was a book that was written that was proving the case that wherever you had a McDonald's in a country, you didn't have wars. They decided we like McDonald's better than we like battles and wars. And so, well, that's kind of gone by the wayside, but it held up for a couple of decades, right? Get a McDonald's into a country. Get them rich enough. Get people to realize that there is some enlightened self-interest in some form of capitalism. And if they just will see that, there will be a certain measure of peace that will be realized in the world. It seemed to work for a while. It doesn't seem to be working so much now. The wheels of that kind of peace are beginning to wobble. Enlightened self-interest will only go so far in creating peace. True peace only comes as God is known and to the extent that God is known. You know him. You know him deeply. He begins to create and author in your life peace. The world knows him and knows him deeply. He will flood the earth with peace. He will drive back every expression of hostility. It won't come through enlightened self-interest. It will come through the enlightenment of God's very presence. Now, we're the people of God. We're the ones who, are, who profess to know God and have a relationship with God. And as such, we should be people who manifest above everything else. Peace. Peace with one another. Peace with before God, peace in the midst of circumstances that are discouraging and threatening, and we among all people should be able to walk among wolves and lions and serpents with a great sense of peace. Let's look at the fourth thing here. We have the all-encompassing participation of his reign. We see this in verses 10 through 12. He gathers the nation to himself. He lifts himself as a sign to the nations and the nations are gathered to him and he, he draws himself as well the scattered remnant of Israel that are throughout the world and this will ultimately be fulfilled at the end of the age but even now he is drawing people to himself from every tongue and every tribe and then when he comes to rule all the nations will come to him to rest in him and find their glory in him. What I want you to see here is in verse 10 the branch of Jesse that we were introduced to in verse 1 there it's a twig. There it's just a slip. There it's just a small little branch that's rising up out of a stump to bear fruit. But now here in verse 10, this branch of Jesse is referred to again, but now it's referred to as the root of Jesse. You see this? In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him the nations shall inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the Messiah who rises up out of the stump of Jesse as a twig or a branch, and yet from this Messiah, Jesse rises. Out of the Messiah, Jesse has risen as the tree. What does it mean? The Messiah was before Jesse. The Messiah was before the stump. The Messiah was before all things, and he includes all things. And all life rises from him. The Messiah is the root of all. The Messiah is the root. You see that? There is an indication here of that divine nature of the Messiah. He's the foundation of all the promises to Israel and all the promises to us who believe. One day all the nations will know that this is the all-glorious one and before him every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord 
to the glory of God. And the sign that's raised of the Messiah, the sign that's raised, is told to us in John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Let's read it for a moment. This takes us back to this tremendous and odd contrast between the power of nations, Syria, northern Israel, Assyria, Ahaz with all of his plans and his Davidic hopes for Davidic power, and then the image of a little child named Emmanuel, who is born unto us and given unto us and rising up as a little slip out of a stump that seems to be neglected. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Where is that? At the cross. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. I guess the question we can ask when we look at this passage we consider the tight spot that Ahaz thought he was in and the whole city of Jerusalem thought they're in is can we trust in God? Can we believe God when the place where the promise should be rising up, there's nothing but a stump? Our great Savior and His great salvation began in a place like that, a place of profound humility and humiliation. And it was there that when men thought all that the promise of life and hope had been lost, it was there in that desolate and defeated place that a stage was set for the king to quietly and humbly make himself known. It's always that way even for us. You go to your own life and you think about your life and you say, when did Jesus really begin to manifest himself to me? Was it at the pinnacle? When it was when you were at the top? Was it when you achieved things? When you'd found how to orchestrate all the things around you to gain your successes? No. It's a moment of devastation. It's a moment in which you accepted your decline which you diminished all the way down to the ground and you saw yourself for what you were, a sinner. A sinner who was never going to be able to construct anything of yourself in your own power and strength that would last and endure and were a stump before you were sawn down. Actually, the Christian life has lived this way as well. Whenever God wants to bring us to trust in Him, usually what He has to do is draw away from us all the other things that we suddenly begin trusting in. We rest in this, we rest in, you know, how the political landscape is and whether our candidate is winning. We rest in whether we're winning in our commercial decisions, in our business endeavors. We line all those things up to draw our sense of comfort and to see whether, you know, the dividends are coming in of the work, that hard work that we've done. And that's not where God moves upon us to bring us to profound faith in Him. It's when He draws those things away from us, when we see the potential of them escaping us and... It's when all that hard work we've done to keep ourselves fit and trim goes away one day when we wake up with a strange cough and we wonder what it is and it advances upon us. We see God is setting a stage to make himself known to us and draw us back to complete and total faith in him. When Isaiah began his ministry, he had a vision of God, high and holy, in a high and holy place. It's told to us in Isaiah chapter 6. And then God called Isaiah and Isaiah responded to the sense of prophetic call in which he'd go before his nation. And God told him that he was to preach a message to the nation that the nation would totally reject. They wouldn't listen to him and they wouldn't honor it. And then Isaiah asked God, well, how long will I have to do this ministry? How long will I 
preach a message that no one will receive. And God's response to Isaiah at that time is, until the cities lie in waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes the people far away, and the forsaken places are many throughout the land. And then God tells him that even if a tenth of the people come back into the land to inhabit the land again, they'll be like a tree that's been cut down like a stump, and then fire has gone over it and burned it. And that's how you come to the end of Isaiah chapter 6. A land that's devastated with nothing but a stump that's been burned over. And then the very last words in verse 16 of Isaiah 6, God makes this short little declaration to Isaiah. He says, the holy seed is in its stump. And out of the desolation that comes upon a resistant people who will not hear God's word and will remain but a burned out stump, the seed of promise is introduced. That's what we've been considering in Isaiah chapter 11. The expression, the full expression of the seed of promise rising up as a blessing to the earth and the nations. So here are three last lessons for us as we hold this in mind. First lesson I would give you is this. Learn where to place your trust. Learn where to place your trust. Trusting in earthly powers and earthly means and earthly strategies will finally fall out from underneath you. The very thing you rest upon and trust upon will not endure. And it certainly will not endure before the presence of the holy God when he comes to judge the earth. Israel would have been a great light to the nation. That was God's plan for them. If they had but trusted in God alone and God could reveal himself. But in trusting in the nations around them and opposing and not trusting in God, they were dwindled down themselves to a stump. And so also dwindled their light to those nations. And it's the same for the church today. If we trust in worldly powers, if we put our hope in outcomes and maneuverings and gaining for ourselves some place of invested interest so that we are people who can have leverage on the scene and get our way and our will, we'll lose our light to the world and we'll dwindle down in stature before it. It's just trusting in him and believing in him. Here's the second thing. God calls for our faith at our points of weakness and defeat and diminishment. And it has to always be this way. The hope in our own personal powers have to be brought to nothing. The twist in our nature that repeatedly relies on our own prowess and our own ability to make things happen by our own personal craft has to be removed God will let the whole house of David dwindle down to nothing but a stump. If you feel like your life is being whittled away bit by bit and that you're on the losing side of the equations of life, if you see others gaining and yourself coming up on the short end of the stick, I want you to consider something. God is seeking to bring you to the point where all your faith will rest in him alone. He's setting the stage for you to let go of your dreams of success and your idea of what will bring you security. He's calling you into his better vision for your life and to trust in him. Here's the last thing I would just say. It's this. I think this is very important. We are not utilitarians. We Christians are not utilitarians. We don't believe in things because they benefit us always immediately or they always bring us success. You ask the Christians who are dying at martyrs in different parts of the world today and are seeing the destruction that's falling upon them, whether they believe because it works out well for them. It's the formula for them being successful in life. 
and getting what they need, we're not ultimately utilitarians. Our faith is not in what is working for the moment. Our faith is in the truth that God will ultimately prevail in his promises to us. And as an object of this faith, God doesn't bring to us the massive machinery of the systems and powers and performance of this age. He doesn't show us, you know, the gargantuan work of an ever-ascending church accomplishing more and more and says, there, believe in this. No. God brings to us a child born in a stable because there's no room for him in an inn. Born under the law. Born to be known as the man of sorrows and a man acquainted with grief. He brings to us the one who is promised to be the Lion of Judah who will come to spread his righteousness over all the earth and rule with a rod of iron and settle all of the complicated issues that history has borne out through sinful man, reign in complete peace and righteousness. And then he invites us to look at this great lion. And as we look at him, what he reveals to us is one who appears as a lamb as though he had been slain. There he is, the lion of Judah. There's where our faith is to rise. We're to see him first as that lamb. He doesn't turn us first even to view Christ in his resurrection power. First, he turns us to see him bearing the crown of thorns in the dereliction of abandonment on the cross, suffering on the cross for our sins, where the child, the holy son of God, dies in our place for our sin and meets us in our desolation, there to begin that work that will take us and all the world into his promised holy habitation. That's not utilitarianism. That's not, I want to believe in what pragmatically works for me today and flips the switch so that I can get on the right track of the winning side of life. That's not it. You know, when I obey God and I submit and I believe in him, I put my faith in him so often, that is a byproduct of his registry in my life and working my life that he blesses me but oh not always the idea that somehow Job is the only one who suffered affliction and didn't get answers from God is crazy look at your life they don't all come to us now God just says trust me trust in nothing else but me me the question is when will we learn that God still calls us to a life of faith in such a vision We are not to be triumphantly adding up the medals of our supposed successes as our rationale for faith. Our faith is to rest in the slip that rose from the stump. It turns to the child that is born in the middle of the world's intrigues and powers. It believes that God is at work and will accomplish what he says in a way that may look foolish to the world, but is right for our need. We need to be brought low And he needs to grow to be everything before our eyes. And as we look at him in this way and place our eye upon that twig, it expands and it grows and it fills the whole earth. And all we begin to see is Jesus only and Jesus always and Jesus ever is our great Savior. That's what God gives us. That's our hope. That's the vision of this antiphon. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Jesus, teach us to project our vision and our sight and the right things each day. When we 
might find ourselves discouraged with what's happening in our age or happening in our lives or happening in the lives of those we love and we care for. Oh God, let us look to you. Let us find all of our promise and hope in you. Let us also believe, dear God, oftentimes in the dwindling and in the deprivations that are coming upon us and around us that you're just laying the groundwork for a fresh expression of your grace. Help us to always say God is merciful. God is good. The Lord Jesus pronounced various blessings upon his people. One of the blessings he pronounced is, Blessed are those who are not offended in me. Oh God, we would not be offended in you or scandalized by the way you work. We'll bow before you and trust you. Help us to be faithful to the promise you gave because we know you will not deny yourself. You are the faithful and true one. That will be the sash that's written across our Savior when he comes He comes to redeem the earth, the faithful and true one. We're waiting for that coming. Now we look to you, O Lamb of God, and we trust in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.